All right, guys, let's uh, begin in a word of prayer together. We'll get started in our next study. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you again uh, for your word. Help us, Lord, to treasure it, to understand it. Give us wisdom as we enter a new study today. And uh, pray, Lord, that your people would be benefited from this, that we would grow, as Peter says, in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We would love you more, commit ourselves to your work, making your name great. Uh, Give us wisdom to understand the text within, even though we're just doing an overview today. Give us understanding. Give us teachable hearts, Lord, that we may grow and be strong in you and the power of your might. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, go ahead and open your Bibles up to the book of Second Peter. Begin a new study today. We've got to take a couple of uh, again Sunday vacation. Then we did the church in Pergamum last week, and uh, it was quite a struggle this past week. I was sitting around thinking, you know, what should we go through next just in terms of uh, subject study, textual study, what things need to be ironed out, and i got to admit, it was very hard to, to think of something, and so I just thought, well, it was always in my mind to do Second Peter after First Peter, might as well do them back to back the majority of the time they are, there is even though within Second Peter there are other subjects covered, it is interesting to look at the continuity in Peter's life and what he has to say. And so, kind of just uh, prevailed upon me to think, oh, well, why don't we just start? Let's start Second Peter. It is God's Word, it is Scripture, and I think there's a lot in here uh, from which we can benefit. It's a really interesting book, and I think one of the things that, you know, among many things in this book that Uh, gets me thinking about it, it is that as one of those books, I think the other one would be 2 Timothy, where we are reading through the last testament, the last will and testament of an apostle. As Peter mentions in this book, if you read down just a little ways, he mentions in chapter 1, verse 14, that he is that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made to me. So in here we consider what a man who is waiting, awaiting his execution has to say. And sometimes it's a curious thing. We look in the Scripture and say, well, what, is a, what does a dying man have to say? But I think more importantly, what does a dying apostle have to say? Like we mentioned... In Paul's second letter to Tim- Timothy, he writes, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Interesting final words, and, it's, and I think it's very helpful to us to look at this and say, well, now that he knows his death is imminent, what is he going to say? How is the Holy Spirit going to move upon him in such a way where he is able to speak truth to his hearers, to his audience? Many people throughout history, both famous and infamous, have had their last words recorded and remembered. We could say that what one has to say in terms of their final words and statements says a lot about them. Not only their character, but what they believe, what their deepest convictions are, even what they are thinking about at the time. One interesting example that we can pull up, especially in the first century context, is if we 
juxtapose what Paul and Peter have to say with the Emperor Nero. It is often thought that 1 Peter is written later on in the 60s AD, perhaps as late as 68. And it is commonly thought, the consensus says that it was under the Emperor Nero that both he and the Apostle Paul were executed. And then Nero was executed most likely very shortly after. But think of what they say next to what Nero has to say. Because Nero's last words were recorded. It is popularly thought that his last words were this, qualis artifacts pereo, which means what an artist dies in me. So when he was being assassinated, that is what came to Nero's mind. What an artist dies in me. Of course, it's his own way of saying that the world is going to be worse off without him. How benefited would the world have been if it, were, if it retained such an artist as Nero? Nero was, it's not an artist, musician, singer, and apparently he thought quite highly of himself. Do we say that he had more of a a Kim Jong-il syndrome, or that Kim Jong-il had a Nero syndrome. In each case, these men think very, very highly of himself. But that was his dying thought. That was his dying words. What will this world be without me? That is how he saw himself. In spite of his wickedness, in spite of his persecution of the people of God, it did not in any way give cause for Nero to think humbly of himself. Oh, What is the world without an artist like myself? I don't even know what to think about that. It's more confusing than encouraging. More confusing than depressing. Final words can fall in either of those categories, but this is what makes the likes of Paul and Peter so special. As they age in the Lord, as they suffer affliction for His name, you see this humbling, you see this view of themselves that they must decrease and Christ must increase. We go again back to what Paul says, poured out like a drink offering. He does not think highly of himself, nor does Peter. They see themselves as simply men who desire to be useful to the master. As Peter relates in the opening verse of Second Peter, he is a bondservant. He is a doulos. He is a slave to Christ. He is Christ's property, his instrument to be used as Christ will use him. And so it makes a letter like Second Peter, so unique and I think so special to us, is that his final message to these churches in Asia Minor are the very Word of God. Think about that. Wrap your head around that. How many final words become God-breathed, right? But here we have Peter looking forward to his own execution, and even the Lord Jesus Himself told Peter the manner in which he would die crucified, though crucified upside down on a Roman cross. And yet his closing words leave a wonderful lesson and encouragement to us, especially in terms of how we think about life from a kingdom point of view. Right? That Peter's impending death was in no way going to compromise the work of the Gospel. It would, it would continue. If you read down in verse 15 of the opening chapter, he says, I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. That's why he's writing this letter. Right? He wants them to be able to call to mind those things that were taught to them. More on the occasion of this writing 
coming up. But he sees as this, he sees this gospel truth as something that will inevitably continue. It will not be stopped. Even with the increasing deaths of the apostles, the truth will carry on. And so he leaves it to these churches to continue to guard that truth and continue to refresh themselves, themselves with it. So the purposes of this, of this morning's study is to co- sort of lay the groundwork to, to, you know, go over the, uh, the authorship, the purpose, the occasion. Why is Peter writing this as well as, uh, the benefit that we, uh, derive from it? What is our goal in studying the, bur- the book of 1 Peter? And there are several. I think there are several blessings for us. So we'll begin this morning by getting some of the more s- scholarly stuff out of the way. And that, of course, is, is, is uh, the authorship of Peter. And I think one of the reasons it, 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 that it's important to have the conviction that this book was written by, by Peter and not someone else is because even early on, its authorship was questioned. Now, across the board in liberal scholarship today, uh, the authorship of Peter of this letter is, is basically uh, denied universally. But even uh, in, in, in the church fathers, there was a struggle to accept this book as genuinely canonical, as having an authentic authorship by Peter. But I think in order to go over a couple of things to, to solidify that in our minds would be, would be a helpful thing. So we would see this, we take, we take God at His word, we look at this, Simon Peter, right? You are, you are Simon, you will now be called Peter, right? Using both names. So looking at the internal evidence, what evidence do we have from the book to say, yes, this surely is Peter? And of course, we have the initial one. Well, he identifies himself as Peter. Across the array of manuscripts, we see that the author identifies himself as Peter, so we're going to go on the assumption that the Apostle Peter did indeed write this book. We're not going to fight him on that. And secondly, of course, Peter indicates in chapter 1, verse 14, that he will die. And since he indicated how he would die, Jesus along with him, it's not hard to assume that Peter now is getting up there in years and understood that his death could come at any time. So he probably remembers the word of, words of Christ regarding the way in which he would die, facing execution that way. He says, oh, this is it. So it would be strange for someone posing as Peter to think this. Thirdly, Peter brings up the event of the transfiguration. And Peter really brings up a lot of interesting things in this book. But one of them is the event of the transfiguration where he and James and John go up to the mountain with Jesus, which is documented in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So if anyone other than Peter wrote this book, it would be very odd for them to, in a deliberate way, describe this story. In, in Peter's life. Fourthly, in chapter 3, verse 15, Peter mentions Paul as a beloved brother and himself as a writer of Scripture. And since they were contemporaries, it would be perfectly natural for Peter to refer to someone in his own time. It would strike us as odd if a later writer, who was not Peter, would, be to, would come along and reference Paul. So as Thomas Schreiner notes, the matter in which he referred to Paul is just the right touch if Peter himself was the author. Respectful and yet no sense of inferiority is communicated, relates his brother Paul as a fellow apostle and a writer of Scripture. Okay. Finally, Peter himself notes that this is his second letter. Well, we just went through the first. That solidifies the argument here. We don't have to look around for a first. 
And we also want to note regarding this fact is that Peter, while referencing 1 Peter, you can see the continuity, he does not rely heavy, heavily on the first letter as if he is trying to uh, make a point or strengthen the argument that he is the author if he indeed is not. If it were a forgery, we would see evidence that the author was taking great pains to substantiate himself by referencing 1 Peter. And yet there's plenty, you'll see it too, there's plenty of new material in the book of 2 Peter that we get to wrestle with. So that's the internal evidence. Just by looking what he says about himself in the scriptures, we can establish a very strong case that this is 1 Peter. I don't doubt, I, or this is Peter. I don't doubt that it's Peter, nor should you. In terms of external evidence, he's mentioned a lot, this book is mentioned a lot in uh, the writings of early church fathers, uh, Barnabas, first and second Clement, Shepherd of Hermas, Justin Martyr, Ignatius. You can look all those guys up later, but just to say that we have that info out there. Um, we even have allusions to him in uh, Irenaeus, I believe it is. In 2 Peter 3.8, we read that with the Lord one day is like 1,000 years and 1,000 years like one day. This is used in similar fashion in the writings of Irenaeus. So just to get to establish why Irenaeus is significant, the Apostle John discipled Polycarp, and Polycarp discipled Irenaeus. So you have a pretty close uh, relationship there between apostle and an early church father. So that's the author, Simon Peter, bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. So who are the recipients? Look again at the opening passage here. Peter is writing to those who have received a faith of the same kind of ours. And we'll unpack that next Lord's Day. In, th- in chapter 3, verse 1, Peter mentions the Beloved. Remember, this is his second letter. So he's writing to the Beloved, and he referred to these same people as Beloved in his first letter. So I think if he references an earlier letter, we go back to the book of First Peter, and we easily find that he is again writing to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. What that would mean, if you're chosen to according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, you are God's beloved. So I would maintain that he is simply writing to the same folks. This is a follow-up letter, one more message before he, he dies. And again, I think this is significant because you've got to remember, at this, at this point in church history, the gospel is absolutely exploding in Asia Minor. Again, modern-day Turkey. You find churches everywhere. So many of the churches that the apostles wrote to were somewhere in Asia Minor. And so, of course, we find that to be a hotbed of false gospels, false teachers, all manner of heresies, legalism, all kinds of problems. Because that is where the kingdom of God is just making an assault on the old creation, right? It's be, the gospel's being preached faithfully. The kingdom of God is being proclaimed and it is spreading throughout all of Asia Minor and the Roman Empire. And so that is where the counter-assault is going to be very significant and very identifiable. So those are the recipients. So again, why did Peter write this? What is the purpose or the occasion? That's the next thing we can go over. And we find this in the final chapter. I always love it when the writers tell the purpose for which they have written. We think of the, of the Apostle John, these things are written. 
so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. There is the message stated, oddly enough, at the end of the Gospel of John. But here we have Peter, also in the last chapter, writing the purpose for this. So look at chapter 3. He says, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So that's the purpose there, very concisely stated. And of course, as we go through the book expositionally, we'll expand on some of these statements. But what is, what is the, really the substance of what Peter is writing? What is he trying to encourage his, his audience to do? It's simply this. Remember Scripture. Remember Revelation. Today we would say, hey, remember your Bible. Look at what's being revealed here. Stir up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets. That could be a summary of just the Old Testament. Remember what was written and announced beforehand concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Because remember, all Scripture, all of the prophets wrote concerning Him. They ultimately pointed to His person and work. His kingdom, right? His accomplishments. His righteousness. He says, don't forget that. But also, there was more revelation. And that was the apostles. The apostles who witnessed the Lord Jesus' ministry. Say, remember what they have spoken to as well. Remember, they complete the revelation concerning Jesus Christ. They complete that which was written beforehand by the prophets. The what the prophets foresaw, but they didn't have the full idea of what Christ exactly was going to accomplish. Remember, we talked about in 1 Peter, you know, time and place and all of that. They didn't have the whole picture, but now, via Christ's ministry and His current enthronement to the right hand of the Father, now we have all of the revelation available. And that is where the apostles came in. They completed the picture so that the Gospel could be proclaimed in all power and see the church built. And so He wants to stir up their mind. So, so we have some continuity here from 1 Peter. Remember, in 1 Peter, he writes, you know, be ready for action, right? Gird up the loins of your mind. Don't let your mind grow slack. Don't let it be lazy or complacent. Prepare your minds to think, right? So this is a, a thinking book. He wants to, the churches, just like he did pre, in the previous letter, to be ready to think. Prepare your minds for action. So in the same sense, you know, we read the, the purpose of 1 Peter. And in chapter 5, he says, this is the true grace of God, right? I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying, but this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Now having explained the true grace of God, he now says, you need to stand in it, now grow in it, right? So you have a connecting theme. Whereas in 1 Peter, that theme was standing firm in the true grace of God. Now it becomes growing in the true grace of God. How do we grow but by recalling constantly by way of reminder of what Christ has done? By recalling often the truths of Scripture and how God has revealed Himself to us. So in 1 Peter, we stand in true grace. In 2 Peter, we grow in true grace. See, we don't want to grow stagnant. 
right? We're not, we're not just a, a reed blown by the wind, right? What, what, what began as a seed is meant to grow up into a tree. What began as a small stone is meant to grow and to be built up into a holy household. So grow, he says. Grow now in the true grace of God. I think there's a very interesting connection there between what we find in, in 2 Peter and, and the book of Deuteronomy. Now, Deuteronomy, of course, is a much bigger book than 2 Peter, but there's an important connection here that we do not, that we do not want to miss. I often think of 2 Peter as the New Testament Deuteronomy. And here's how. Deuteronomy literally means second law. It was the second giving of the law. Now, if you go back in the Exodus, you see, of course, in Exodus 20, the, the writing on the tablets of stone, right? The giving of the Ten Commandments. The summing up, as it were, of the law. But then you go to Leviticus and you have the whole law being delivered to the nation of Israel. And so before Moses dies on Mount Nebo, he gets before the congregation in Deuteronomy and he reminds the Israelites as their status as the people of God and the importance of keeping the commandments of God in love for God, right? It's not just keeping the commandments. It's also loving the God who gave them. And so really the theme of Deuteronomy is remember, right? Continue, O people of Israel, to call these things to mind. Because if you don't, you are going to get swept away by all manner of temptation, right? You're going to fall into to idolatry. You're going to do the same things that the pagan nations around you do, and even worse. And then you are going to be vomited out of the land, right? It's going to spew you out. And so here we come to 2 Peter. And this is what he does this, a similar thing in this small letter. He gives a series of reminders to these Christians who are still enduring a measure of suffering from those who reject Jesus as Messiah and, and who these same people are calling into question the promise of His coming judgment. So that's the occasion. So there's a real, there's a real concern here. And we'll sort of see the, the transition of concerns as, as we get into this. Because in 1 Peter, one of the main concerns that he addressed was that the church would stand firm in the true grace of God against the external threats of persecution. And of course, I would say in the ensuing years, however long uh, time span there is between First and Second Peter, persecution definitely has ra- ramped up, especially, especially in the area of Rome. So that's, that, 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 that weighs heavily on Peter's mind. You see the love that, that the, this apostle has for, for his people and wants to encourage them to continue growing. And so that's when we get into the flow of this book. So in this part, I kind of want to give us a general overview of the book, and I think we find a pretty distinct pattern. Now, depending on uh, the numerous well-written commentaries on the book of Second Peter, you can find different, different uh, representations of how this book flows. But just kind of going from top to bottom, uh, see, seeing, seeing the, the, the train of thought that Peter uh, describes here, so, of course, in the opening part of this book, he calls out to those same Christians who are in the churches of Asia Minor. And the, main, the initial thing he, he points out is that as partakers of the divine nature, in chapter 1, verse 4, he encourages them to grow. So if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are His true church, you need to grow. You need to keep growing. There's, there's nothing wrong with saying that. There's, there's no... There's no pride or some kind of counterfeit righteousness in that. If you are righteous in Christ, 
You will grow in righteousness. You will grow in grace. You will mature in some form or the other by remembering, by calling to mind those things that were taught to you. You need to grow. And of course, he mentions that those who have not grown, those who are not growing, in verse 9 of chapter 1, he says, if you lack these qualities, you're blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his, your, your purification from former sins. That's exactly why he says, remember, call to mind. If you call to mind constantly, the less you will be forgetting. And as, and as this goes on, he, is, he, he goes on to warn these churches about these corrupt and false teachers who are leading Christians astray by two primary instruments. One is by bad behavior, and the other is by bad theology. And of course, they're linked. Where does bad behavior come from? Bad theology. Remember, everyone, even the most ardent atheist, is a theologian. Everyone believes things about God. And you will living, and you will live according to your most, to your deepest beliefs about God. So if your theology is bad, if what you believe about God is crooked, so will your behavior be. And so Peter, of course, is concerned about this internal threat toward the churches. And so he begins by that encouragement, right? Look at, in 1 Peter, remember, he launches into that description of the amazing salvation that the church has in Christ, right? And so it, it is here that he builds on that truth. This amazing salvation you have, now grow in it. Be fruitful. Live a life of fruitful godliness. Enjoy your partaking of that divine life. And of course, in this list, he builds on that, right? You see almost this, this tower of sanctification, looking at chapter 1 again. Very important that we kind of go over this. I want you guys to start thinking about this because we're really going to get into it. In verse 5, he says, in your faith, supply moral excellence. In your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. Okay. So we see this, this tower of, of spiritual virtues. Things they are called to pursue. So one on top of the other, the other which culminates in love. And they are to grow in those things. And with that, they will be equipped to withstand the various challenges that are already upon them. Now you go down to verse 16. After announcing this, what does Peter say? He starts sort of his polemic against these false teachers. In verse 16 of chapter 1, note he says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, Right, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. See, unpacking that a little bit, what do we, what, what do we draw from this is that there is already an accusation going around that what Peter and his gospel ministry partners are teaching isn't the truth at all. It's fairy tales. Does that sound familiar to the things we face today, especially when we tell others about Christ and we preach the gospel? Oh, it's the flying spaghetti monster. Oh, Jesus was just a myth. He wasn't a historical person. It goes back to some Roman aristocratic conspiracy meant to gain control over the masses or some such nonsense, right? Seems like the longer time goes by, the more of it is made up concerning Christ. Whereas before, his, the historical truth of, of his life was never really questioned, but now it's, it's sort of a convenient thing people do to try to write him off. But it happened back then. It happened in the first century. 
And Peter makes clear, we're not following cleverly devised tales when we made known to you this. See, one of the, the reasons that this accusation is going on is that it is used to give license to these false teachers to, one, live a life of complete godlessness, and secondly, to deny the truth of a coming judgment. And we'll get more into that later, of course. But, the, but, if, but, if you, but if you can sweep aside the gospel, if you can sweep aside, if only in your own imagination, the lordship of Christ and the fact that He is the only King and only Savior, you will give yourself all kinds of excuses to live a life of godlessness. At least you're consistent. Again, without the God of the Bible, without the Christian worldview, everything is reduced to chaos and absurdity. You can't prove anything. So why not eat and drink for tomorrow we die? And so that is what these false teachers are doing. And that's the problem. They are peddling this kind of philosophy, this kind of perverse theology, and yet they are leaders in the church and telling people that, hey, you can do the same thing we're doing. Which, of course, harkens back to what First Peter says, right? That there's these people out there who are persecuting you, they're surprised that you don't follow them headlong into the same dissipation. Now you have leaders in the church who are saying, yes, it's quite acceptable, even admirable, to do this and celebrate this kind of behavior. So what a challenge for these churches. What a challenge for Peter then to not only address this, but to confront this. And so Peter says, these aren't cleverly devised tales. We, we were eyewitnesses. And not only that, you go down a little bit, verse 19. We saw Jesus, but we also have the prophetic word made more sure, or the more sure word. Not only do we have an eyewitness account, but we also have the word of God itself. We have the written revelation that testifies of the truth of the gospel. Remember that. Call to mind that. Because that is our starting point. That is what we stand on. And it confronts this, this godlessness that is running rampant in the churches. And so with that... Peter uses it as a foundation to confront these corrupt leaders in church and to answer all of these objections that may emerge out of their influence. We want to confront today as well because once Christ is denied, once the reality of His Lordship and the fact that He is Savior and the Gospel are called into question and swept aside, that becomes the basis for rampant immorality and that's exactly what's happening in these churches. So as the gospel spreads, satanic opposition mounts, and throughout the New Testament, the primary way that this happens is the establishment of false churches or of false teachers in the church. And so 2 Peter warns about the destructive heresies they will introduce. And we'll get through all the specifics of that. It's terrible. You kind of keep when you read through 1 Peter. As he's describing, I mean, it's just one thing after the other. These are perfect heathens. But the the threat comes through the hypocrisy. But they do all these things, things and yet claim to know and love Christ. Those things have to be confronted. So they will introduce destructive heresies. Peter says, going further down now in chapter 2, that Many will follow their sensuality. See, like we discovered at the church in Pergamum last Lord's Day, there is a common connection between false teachers and immorality. Where you find a false teacher, where you find gospel compromise, you will find immorality of all kinds. It's a certain sign that false teachers are present. 
and that the church has slipped into compromise. And so Peter reminds them that God is going to judge them even though it seems like they're getting away with everything at the moment. And throughout church history, we face the same challenge. We think of it today. I mean, you think even, even in my own prayer life, I, I, I cry out to the Lord and I think, Lord, when, when is justice going to come for those who hate you? Of course, all the while doing some self-examination, right? You don't want to, you don't want to get swept away with unbelievers because your faith is found false. But that is the cry of the godly. Lord, your name is being dragged through the mud. You are, your son whom you love is being misrepresented. Is being used as a grounds for all kinds of immorality and idolatry and godlessness. And sometimes, and I think this church faced the same challenge. Sometimes we second guess God's justice. Sometimes we, 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 we call into question His promises that He will make things right. That He will judge unbelief severely, but He will do so in His own time. And Peter assures us, So going back to the flow, Peter gives us three examples of this. Gives the church three examples to encourage them to to patiently persevere through this. If you look down in chapter 2 of 2 Peter again, he mentions, he gives three particular examples. One we had fun with in 1 Peter was the judgment of angels when they sinned. Following quickly after that is the the, the the, the flood judgment. And then in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, Now, in each of those cases, judgment was not anticipated. I would say especially the the, the number two and three. See, things went on as usual. We're not going to be judged. If God is going to judge us, why doesn't He come down right now and reveal Himself? Right? If He's so powerful, if He is so just, and if what I am doing is so sinful, where is He? Right? This is what the godless ask. That is their question. And so... Life goes on as normal because there's no anticipation of judgment. And yet, in each of these, there was severe, severe retribution. But what is the common denominator in all of these that the church, even today, can rest in? It is this, that God is faithful. We serve a faithful God. Thankfully, we serve a God who is ultimately faithful to Himself. God is true to Himself. He is faithful to His own Word. He is faithful to judge. And He is faithful to deliver His people, imperfect they may be, because they have found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And by that grace, and through faith, are reckoned righteous. So that is the hope we have. So Peter continues in chapter 2, verse 12, if you want to just keep on following along, beginning with that, you know, uh, verse verse, verse 10 and 11, daring, self-willed, you know, whereas angels who have a greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord, but these, unlike, un, unlike, un, or like unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed. See, that's just the beginning. Likening these false teachers to animals who are completely enslaved to sin following their fleshly impulses, really living for the flesh. They're arrogant, foolish, sexually immoral, shameless, Wayward, no better than animals, acting purely on instinct. See, this is all rooted in a perverse understanding of freedom in Christ. I think that's why Peter brings up Paul. Paul was really big on Christian liberty, right? All things are lawful, not everything is beneficial. 
Peter mentions in chapter 3 concerning our beloved brother Paul, verse 15, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable, who are the untaught and unstable? These false prophets, right? These false teachers who, they are the ones who come in and distort the Word of God. Sure, Paul says this. Well, what he really meant was that we can really, you know, we can do anything. It's okay. It's sort of like that God will forgive me attitude. Right? Almost goes back to the Greek way of thinking, sort of like almost a Gnostic type of thinking or a Hellenistic type of thinking where because it's, because it's my body, right, it doesn't really matter what I do with it. Right? If it feels good, do it. Sort of a Hugh Hefner mentality. What could happen? What bad could happen? It's not really that bad. And so by misunderstanding Paul, you notice how the competition goes here, right? Oh, well, well, we've heard our brother Paul. Peter may say this, but Paul the Apostle says this. We understand him. We really understand what he's saying. We can, we can live this way. We can follow our impulses. That is what it means to truly be alive. And so what makes this so troubling is that it is they are leading others to do the same, all the while knowing the commands of God. These are people that most likely have been discipled. They have been taught the gospel. They have learned the word. But they have twisted it in such a way so as to lead others back to the very thing that they came out of. Back to that very pagan lifestyle. These teachers know the gospel. They've been a part of the church. They've been a part of the new covenant community. And yet they still act like this. And so they live this way and say, where then is the promise of His coming? You get down to chapter 3 after Peter reminds them in the beginning of the chapter of why he's writing the letter, right? Stand on the Word of God. Call it, call it to your mind. And then immediately in verse 3, he says, know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking. See, they will they will live this way and say, you see, time has gone by. God hasn't judged us, so it's probably never going to come. Right? And I believe contextually, what is in view here, the promise of His coming, is that the churches, because of the way the apostles wrote to them, were expecting Christ to return in their lifetimes, and justly so, because Christ would specifically return in judgment upon the apostate city of Jerusalem. And so remember, Jesus said that it would happen to this generation. Remember, this generation, Matthew 24, will not pass away until all these things are fulfilled. So we are approaching 40 years since the Olivet Discourse was given. So in, in, that, in the first century reckoning, that would constitute somewhere around a generation. Time's going by, the apostles are dying, they're getting old. Ha, where is this? You say Jesus is going to come and judge. Jesus said He was going to come and judge. Where is that promise? See, so there is. that's where the scoffing comes from. Because the churches were anticipating the Lord to return and to put an end to that old order. right? To bring, to bring that old system down as corrupt as it was. And so it hasn't happened yet. And that's one of the reasons that Peter is addressing them. He says it the promise of the Lord is true. And just as there were scoffers long ago, acting like the Lord wouldn't judge, doing life as normal, judgment came. Right? In verse 7 we read of chapter 3, but by His word the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. See, he says it'll come. 
The Word of God is holding this together, right? And by His Word, He will judge. But He will do so, as we have already said, in His own time. So keep trusting, keep growing, keep persevering. The Lord, the Lord will judge. He is faithful to judge. So he's reminding these true believers in these churches to have a heavenly mindset regarding the timing. Rather than doubting God's good and just character, we are called to see that the withholding of his judgment, both in the near and far aspect, there's, a, there's plenty of application here today, that when God withholds his judgment, it is a demonstration of his great patience towards sinners and his grace of calling the elect to himself. I mean, it's, that, that's, a, that's a time to recall or, or to bring up some self-examination to recall the grace given you, right? Why didn't God take you out before He saved you? The question's obvious. He was patient towards you. You were His elect. He desired to save you. So He was patient and allowed wickedness to continue. But as time went on, in the grand scheme of things, the longer God tarries, the more His kingdom grows. The more people are called Him. The more people are redeemed. And so God is faithful. He demonstrates His faithfulness in His redeeming work to bring about the new heavens and new earth as Peter talks about near the end of chapter 3. Remember? A kingdom in which righteousness dwells. Righteousness will be characteristic of the new heavens and new earth. Not the ungodliness of this old system that is gonna be, that is gonna pass away with fervent heat, right? This passing away, whatever it is, is going to be intense. It is going to be violent. It is going to be obvious. So rather than indulging in the deeds of the flesh and living life consistently with the old creation that is passing away, Peter calls the church, he calls us to live consistently with the new creation in the world to come. And how are we able to live consistently with the new world to come unless we are reminding ourselves constantly of the word that has been spoken. Because it is the word spoken, the word written, regarding the person and work of Christ that equips us to live life consistently with the new creation. Why? Because we are a new creation. So it gets down to that closing statement in chapter 3, not to be carried away by the error of unprincipled men and to fall from your own steadfastness. So perseverance here is a great concern. But he says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. While they're doing this, while they are increasing in ungodliness, he says, you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Commit yourselves to exposing wickedness, exposing ungodliness. Why? Because that is the very purpose of God in redemption. Is this, this burning away, he says, this, this, this burning away of the old creation, we should think less of fire and more of an exposure. Everything is going to be seen as it actually is. Evil will be uncovered and it will be done away with. It will be removed to make way for the new heavens and new earth, right? Where righteousness is not the exception, but the rule. What does this tell us, of course? Things we've highlighted before is that what we know about God is that He loves His creation, right? He loves His creation and He is determined to reconcile it. He is determined to make all things right. But in order to do that, God must confront, even violently, all that arrays itself against Him and against Jesus Christ, His beloved Son, appointed King, and Savior of the world. All that has to happen, right? This is not going to be all sunshine and rainbows. 
The old creation must be dealt with in a definitive and swift and severe manner. And that is what the Lord has designed to do in His reconciling work. And we are partners in this. We are used as instruments in this. We expose evil where it is, and we persevere also in righteousness. We continue to grow so we are not swept up in the flood of judgment. We don't want to be. We don't want it to be revealed of us when all is burned away, when all is exposed, of being hypocritical, of being not really in Christ, of not persevering. So that's the general summary, right? But it ends on a good note: grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and to day, the day of eternity. Amen. So that's our summary, right? So typically we'd move into themes. What are the themes? But we want. We don't want to be too. We don't want to be too scholastic here, but I think in drawing from the general themes of this book, I want I kind of want to turn that into goals that we're looking for. This is sort of like sort sort of the, the, the pastoral view of this book. What what do I desire for Emmaus Road to get out of this book? Right? To how how is it to help us grow? What what are some what are some goals of sanctification that we can pursue in studying the book of Second Peter. And we, you know, even what I'm about to mention, we never want to limit to that because the Lord can surprise us in a variety of ways to cause us to grow in ways that we did not anticipate early on. So we count on that. So here are some goals. Here are some things we want to be on the lookout for. And I think I'm, I can say I'm really excited to go through these things. There's, there's plenty of them. But again, I want us to be amazed by how significant of an impact even a small book like this can have on the life of the church. Three chapters, very small, not, not a lot to say at all in terms of how much is written, but the amount of truth that we can draw out of it, I really think will benefit us immensely. And in all things, we want, to, we want God to have the glory as we study this book. So first of all, here's, here, here's, here's, here's the first thing, is I want our study of Second of Peter to help us persevere in spiritual growth. We've kind of mentioned that already, but I really just want us to grow. I want us to be thinking a lot about spiritual maturity, not only on the individual level, but all, but especially in the corporate level. How are we growing together as the body of Christ? That's Peter's initial uh, pronouncement there, is, is growing, right? Growing in grace. And then he closes the book with that. And so, Spiritual growth is going to be a, an obvious theme. And again, standing in grace is emphasized in 1 Peter. Growing in grace is emphasized in 2 Peter so that we are not stagnant, so that we continue to grow. Right? We are already rooted in Christ. Now we want to grow in Christ, constantly being nourished on the Word. So he, of course, stacks all of these things one upon the other. In the opening chapter, we see how that grows and of course, faith. We see. Look at verse. Uh, look at look at verse five. Now, for this very reason, also applying all diligence in your faith. Keep note that that is where it begins. When we grow in godliness, it must be emphasized that we only grow through faith. Yes, we are saved by grace through faith, but we continue to be sanctified through faith. Justification, yes, is by faith, but sanctification is not something that is left up to us. Sanctification comes continually 
by constant trust in Christ alone and all that He provides through the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, we're going to end up a bunch of moralists. We're just going to keep blowing people out, right? Making demands on each other that we can't possibly fulfill. Just as Jesus describes the Pharisees and Sadducees and teachers of the law in Matthew 23, right? You, 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 you tie up these burdens upon people, but you don't lift a finger to help them. We don't want to be like that, so we want to grow in grace, but we also want to grow by faith and be those who love one another, that being the end goal, to love one another as Christ has loved us. We want to increase in these things so that we are useful and fruitful and consider what it is to continue to grow in true knowledge of Christ. And of course, as Peter says, that will culminate ultimately into entrance, verse 11, chapter 1, entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, that's something that comes in abundant measure. So we don't want to grow slack. We don't want to grow complacent and neglect the joyful duty of always pursuing spiritual growth. We want to beware of stagnation. So that's the general rundown. But we want to grow. grow, grow spiritual growth is, is a constant concern for me. I always want us to be maturing. Right? I always want us to be looking out for one another, not being busybodies, but to give careful attention to one another, to be able to identify those things which are choking out uh, the ability of the Word to, to take root in our lives. And so here's the second thing, and this really walks hand in hand with spiritual growth. And this one, I think, is clear as day. Um, it is that you will know God. Really, I mean, that, that, is, that is the very purpose of man, right? That he, that as image bears, we may know God, to know God in his fullness. See, we were kind of born in a rough position. We have a, an initial knowledge of God via creation, but we suppress that knowledge. But once we are born again through the power of the gospel, I mean, the sky is the limit. We are, we, we, we are able to know God. To know God, to walk with Him, to grow with Him. And it's, and it sounds like a general thing. But if we have knowledge of anything, it is to know God. And knowledge, knowing, is the most repeated theme in this book. And in, in, in chapter one, verse five, Peter lists knowledge even as part of that tower of growing in grace. All over the book, he talks about knowing, right? Calling things to mind. In verse 16 of chapter 1, right? We've already been to this, but when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's appealing to what they know and desires that we constantly remind ourselves to refresh ourselves in knowledge. Right? Know this first of all. Always telling us to know. Right? Chapter 2. Contrast that with people who have no knowledge, right? Chapter 2, verse 12. They have no knowledge and are destroyed on account of that. Going back to chapter 3, verse 3. Know this first of all, but in the last days. See? Knowledge is good. Knowledge is helpful. Knowledge helps us grow and we're supposed to grow in it, but he's constantly appealing to what they know. Going back to chapter 2 and verse 21, he says of false teachers, it would better be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from this. Further back in chapter 1, verse 20, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. 
So you see the pattern there. And that's not even all of them. But it's important for the Christian to know his God. Whatever instrument Scripture prescribes, we are called to know God. See, we are, if, if, if knowledge is stagnant, what do we read in Scripture about it? Knowledge puffs up. That's the kind of knowledge that puffs up. When we confine knowledge to sort of an unrelated pile of facts, that's the kind of knowledge that puffs up. But we are looking for, for a kind of knowledge that builds us up in the faith, right? We want to understand knowledge as life-transforming revelation. When we read our Scriptures and we meditate on it, we're not just looking at the facts about God. We are looking at the truth about God that conforms us to Jesus Christ, that makes us more like Him, that makes us more God-minded, that makes us commit ourselves to the purpose of God in this world. See, we are not like the rich man Remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus. We don't do what he did in sort of a knowledge fashion where we, 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 we build ourselves up in knowledge and then we tear down the old barns of what we know and build up a new barn and just constantly stack up facts without being useful, right? without growing. See, we don't want to be like that. We don't want to be like those teachers who have no knowledge and therefore have the truth maligned. Knowledge is always meant to transform our lives in building a, a biblical worldview so that in effect, we can see all of creation, all of reality in the way that God sees it. That's why we grow in knowledge of God. So we can know Him and see things the way He sees them. That is part of our fellowship with God. See, the more we know, the more we know our Creator, the more we know our Savior, the more we delight in Him, and the more we see things the way he, he sees them. And that is how we grow. So it's sort of this compounding effect. As we know God, the more we grow in Him, and the more we grow in Him, the more we desire to know Him. That is how knowledge is meant to work. Right? And so knowing God, we know His character, and we know that He is just. That's why... See, He takes a knowledge of the living God, a true knowledge to understand that His purposes in redemption require His people to be patient. See, we know what God knows. God knows that He is being patient so that He can continue to save people, right? That would be very troublesome to the Christian if we did not know the reason why God tarries. The reason that He withholds His judgment. It be especially troublesome in the first century. So not just any knowledge, right? How do we avoid going down the path of unprincipled men? How are we not carried away? It is knowledge. But not just any knowledge. It is knowing God and trust in His Word. To grow in that grace and knowledge. He wants us to grow. So that we stand firm, but also grow firm. Here's another thing. Just This one will be very quick. But in any... In any study of any book, but especially this one, because Peter emphasizes it. So we want, our un, we want our confidence in the Word to grow. That's another goal of this. As we go through this book, I want you guys to come to really love God's Word and to trust it, that your confidence will grow in it, that you don't have to approach the Word unbelieving or doubting, in its, doubting concerning its source. That when we read the Word, we can be confident that we hold in our lap the very words of God. As Peter emphasizes here, really, really solidifies this concept that not only did he witness the Lord Jesus Christ and his majesty, 
But he says that we have that prophetic word, right? Chapter 1, verse 19, right? And in verse 20, he says, Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. As we grow in the knowledge of God, it is so essential, right? So, so important that we continue to refresh ourselves with the truth that we have God's Word, right? This is God's Word. God has spoken to us. Especially in times of trouble, the last thing we want to be doing is second-guessing whether or not God has spoken to us. Is second-guessing whether or not God has revealed Himself in a very clear and powerful way. We want to come to the Scripture knowing that this is not merely the word of men. This is not the opinions of men. This is not another worldly philosophy that leads us to nowhere. No, this is God's Word. This is God speaking to us. And this is a book that will help solidify our confidence in it. Here's another one. This would be, I think, the fourth one. I think this is more obvious is so that we would be on guard against false teachers. Now, here's where there's some kind of, there's sort of a difference struck here between the first letter and the second letter. Now, in 1 Peter, throughout the book is this theme of persecution and affliction from, usually from without, right? Outsiders, those who are not a part of the church that are giving uh, the members of all these churches scattered across Asia, Asia Minor grief Grief for not partaking in their pagan lifestyle, in their unbelieving, in their unbelieving way of life. But we have, I think, what, what could constitute even a greater threat here is the threat from within. So you have those who persecute from without, unbelievers, and then you have posers, right? Posers who come across as believing, even, even, even being in the community long enough to be elevated to the, to, to the position of teacher or perhaps elder, and they are preaching a false gospel. So that is an internal threat that Peter does not emphasize so much in his first letter. But here, it's, it, it, is, it is really uh, obvious. And he says, beware of this. Beware of this internal threat of false teachers, right? While also persevering in a culture that is being, that is continually marginalizing them from society. So this is that looming threat that already seems to have gained a foothold in the church. You know, if you read through First and Second Timothy, you realize Timothy is facing the exact same problem at a similar, these are written at similar times, mind you. So this is happening in many churches. You have these men who have crept in unawares as they're described, and they have gathered students, right? They have gathered students to listen to them. They've, they've accumulated disciples and they are training them in this godless way, in this false gospel. And they are, so there is this destructive work that they are inflicting upon the people of God. And what a challenge that Timothy faces. And so these other churches face them as well. And Timothy had to discipline out, them out and turn them over to Satan because of that destructive work. So again, this is something that is very close to my heart, especially now. I mean, recently I've told some of you guys about this, that there was, there, there is a young man who actually used to be under my, uh, spiritual oversight, um, worked with him for a while, and he's become a false teacher. One of the things he's denied is the Trinity. Some really fundamental doctrines where you can't deny them and call yourself a Christian. And, and it really, and it really causes great anguish to see to see people go away and preach another gospel, to preach another God and another Jesus. 
But this is a constant, ongoing challenge to the church and I think will be for the rest of the redemptive age. We will always be called to face down false teachers. And so whether you're a teacher here or a church member, I do not want you to fall prey for, prey to this. I don't want you to I don't want you to latch on to this antichrist teaching that leads you astray and will lead others astray. I would much rather see you fall fall to temptation from without and yet cling to Christ in humble repentance than buy some second-rate false gospel from the inside. It can be it's, I think it's much more dangerous in the long run. Because often by the time you even recognize this godless lifestyle and abandonment of the true faith, these folks have already led several, piece, pe- several people astray. This is because they mostly o- operate in secret. They're covert operatives, right? They're like spiritual CIA. Corrupt as the FBI. right? And they're in here, they pretend to be one of us, and yet they are not of us. But they lead people down the path of a false gospel and giving them a false hope and leading them in a false notion that they can live however they want. And so that always has to be confronted, but in many scenarios, it, it's, it's very late. It's hard to grow in grace when you have so many thorny weeds threatening to choke out the Word via this false teaching. Here's another one. No time is running short, but let's get through this. Another one is simply learning how to navigate difficult texts. I would say Peter, Second Peter is probably the book that is most densely packed with difficult texts. I mean, you go through this and you're like, what does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? Right? You have, you have this, uh, in chapter two, for instance, the, these people who have come in and they deny the master that bought them. Well, how does that square with eternal security, for instance? What does it mean also in chapter two for a dog to return to its own vomit? What does that mean regarding eternal security? You know, what does it mean when Peter talks about the, the, this, this sort of end of the universe in fire, the, the works of the earth being burned up in chapter 3, verse 10? And that's just a sample. But we have a lot of really difficult texts to wade through, and so I do want to challenge you guys. Take advantage of that time. Do your homework. Look, be diligent students of Scripture. Use this as a catalyst for that. Because we're going to come across some very hard passages in here, and I'm hoping that they will serve to unite the church rather than divide us. But I mean, these, these passages are here, and they're not going away. But I think when we really study these difficult texts, we, we find the, the joy of discovery, things that we never knew before. And so I would uh, encourage you to prayerfully consider uh, your own study time when we go through these things. Although they are difficult, it is Scripture, and so we, we can come to the conclusion that it is beneficial for us, right? All Scripture is profitable for us. So let's take advantage of this time and, and, and look at the Word of God carefully and grow from it. It's no coincidence that the book of Second Peter has several very difficult texts in it. And here's the final one. And this is the issue of eschatology. Among all the difficult texts to navigate here, we come across this area of eschatology. And so it is this. Part of growing in the grace of God is learning what to expect 
from that work of grace. And I think 2 Peter is a great opportunity to sharpen our eschatology. And some of us may come to this and really be surprised. Like, wow, this changed my mind on this issue. You know, in in 1 Peter, we hear a lot about the revelation of Jesus Christ, right? A salvation being being ready to be revealed at the last time. The end of all things is near. The appearing of the chief, the, the chief shepherd. We think, what does all this mean, right? Well, we have this language also used in the book of Second Peter, so we really want to wrestle with it and hopefully um, be reminded, as Peter says, of a very important concept. And it is this, is that Scripture interprets Scripture. It'll be a wonderful exercise in that. That the Holy Spirit... Not us in our fancy learning, but the Holy Spirit is His own best interpreter. And so as we explore the Word with diligence, I I really think that we will be encouraged by a sharpening of our eschatology, even even if we land our plane on different tarmacs. It'll be helpful to study carefully uh, what it is that Scripture is saying. And again, when it comes to eschatology, we do not want to misrepresent what God has said regarding the last things. And there's a lot of very colorful and intense apocalyptic language used here in Second Peter. And so we, wanna, we want to love Scripture and handle it with care and honor God in our diligence. What this means, and it's hard for some, is that we do not want to impose our theology upon the text. Rather, we want to draw our theology from the text. I know we love our theology, right? We love reading our books. We have our favorite authors. But we don't want to take a preconceived theology and force it upon a text because, because some, whether from, whether from fear or something else, we want to be humble and let scripture speak for itself. And I trust that for many of us, our views regarding the eschaton will be challenged, even confronted, and we may we may have to change our view regarding certain things. But when it comes to Scripture, yes, we do want to have a humble heart and an open mind regarding what God has said so that we rightly divide His Word. So I think, you know, most of us come from a line of, uh, you know, church attendance or discipleship where we really are able to enjoy eschatology, whether you're dispensational, whether you're covenantal, Ah, mill, post, pre-wrath, or pan-millennial, you believe it's all going to pan out. What I'm saying is, I don't, you know, (laughs) I don't want to be vague. Of course, of course, we believe it's going to pan out, right? Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. But I think there's immense benefit in knowing how it pans out. And I believe, I believe that the Lord wants us to know, right? Because it encourages us. And so that leads me to the last thing. And this is a huge encouragement from, from this book and, and, and strengthens us to persevere. And it's in light of understanding eschatology, and it is that I want us as a church to be encouraged by the promise of a new exalt and exalted creation. Peter references new heavens and new earth. And it's always helpful for the church to refresh itself at the fountain of God's promises, right? We are meant to see that and say, wow, yes, newness is coming in. It's in, it's the inescapable fact of Christ's redemptive work. He will and is currently bringing in the new heavens and new earth. So not only do we refresh refresh ourselves on those promises, we understand that they have either already been fulfilled or are currently being fulfilled in Christ. Right? But there's more in terms of being excited about this. It is that in regards to this new creation, right now, the Lord Jesus is using us as His ambassadors to advance the new creation. 
We don't do it by our own strength, but we do it by the power of the Gospel. And I want us not to separate the work that we do in the here and now from the new heavens and new earth. Right? The end of all things is near. What does that tell us? The old order is being destroyed. It's being put aside. And the new is coming in. And I want us to be able to rejoice that we get to participate in that. That's pretty awesome. Christianity doesn't have to be boring, right? We're just hunkering down for now. No, man, we are, we are ambassadors of the King of the universe. And He calls us, right? It's with a holy calling to advance His creation as He empowers His church, right? He who calls us is faithful. He will do it. But He is using us as His instruments. So I want us to stand up as we grow and cling to that calling and to rejoice in it and take comfort that God's Word is sure and that He will not fail to bring all of His reconciling work to completion. See, we may not see the fruit that we want to see in this life, but that, in, that does not in any way undermine the promises of God. Right? So be encouraged. Though we persevere, though we face threats from the inside and out, Peter tells us exactly what we are to do. Remember, recall what has been spoken to you and get to work, right? Get to work as God's kingdom people and watch Him transform this old creation to new even as He is doing now. So much to rejoice in. I believe much to be excited about in this text and uh, I encourage you all Uh, just in light of what we've gone over this morning. Be in prayer about it. Be diligent in your own study. And watch the Lord bring growth to you and to His church. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank You again for Your love and goodness to us. And thank You for this this book of 2 Peter. What What a great book it is. And again, I'm excited to get into it. And even with all the difficult passages, I, I, I am... Lord, trusting that You will bring growth to this church. That uh, as we reflect on this text together, You will do a mighty work in our midst. That beginning from faith, we will grow into a church whose defining point is love. We want to be a church who loves one another, but also loves our neighbors as ourselves. To have a heart for the lost. To be ambassadors of Your kingdom. Lord, knowing that the old order has been crushed and that by Your Gospel You are ushering in the new. The old is being, what remains of it, is being swept away. And so, we, we stand in a point of time, Lord, where we have much to anticipate. And I pray, Lord, that You would encourage us in that work. There's so much that that Peter has talked about, even in a very short book, much to keep in mind regarding uh, growth and grace, but also being on guard against false teachers and being swept away. Lord, we want to stand firm. We want to grow in You, and we want to want to be able to, after having done all, to stand. Uh, we know, Lord, that You are faithful to uh, judge. You are faithful to deliver. And You are faithful in Your promises to Your people. And I pray that we would cling to those. Lord, we would stand on them knowing that You are good to us and that You will not fail to make Your Word come to pass. So uh, may we be mature in that regard. 
to always lean on Christ and what he, he has done, to always stand on your word and what it proclaims. Um, that, Lord, we commit all these things to you. Help us to know you. Help us to love you. Because you have first loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.